Uh, we're looking, uh, those who are visiting with us, we're looking at the life of a king whose name was Hezekiah. A good man, a good king. Matter of fact, at the beginning we've been seeing how this man did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Not man's evaluation. He wasn't worried about that for obvious reasons. He was worried about what God thought of him. And so sure enough, he took even what his father had built up, the idols, the king of Assyria at that time, he went against him. He did not depart from the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. We saw that last week. Took the idols that Israel had been worshiping for over 700 years and broke them up. And this guy was on a roll. I mean, he was doing all the right things. And you would think... When somebody does the right thing, that everything is going to be real good then. You would think everything's going to be just fine now that he's doing what was right. And you would think everybody's going to surround him and say, Oh, you're the great king, and we're going to trust everything that you're doing and saying. But what you will see is just the opposite. Folks, whenever we purpose in our hearts to do the right thing, remember there is an enemy. What we're going to be learning today is that the enemy uses words to lure us into believing there's a better way, and what we're going to talk about a little later on is there's an easier way. But I want you to remember that the easy way is not always the right way. There are allurements out there that are trying to take you and I in our mind and trying to compromise, if you will, to try to go a different direction than what God has laid out. What you also remember is that Hezekiah looked back at the words of Moses, the law of Moses. He followed also the, uh, the way David had been king over Israel. And he followed that same pattern. And by doing this, he began to go in a direction that Israel was not familiar with, in particular Judah, these two tribes that are, are located in the, in the south, and, and Jerusalem is their capital, and they are following him and watching the catastrophes that are happening all around. At this point, the king of Assyria has taken the northern tribes and has destroyed them. Matter of fact, you'll remember that list of different gods. Matter of fact, you'll, you'll remember in, in verse number 34. But the last point, he says, have they delivered, that is, have all of these gods delivered Samaria, which is Israel's capital? Have, it, have they delivered them out of my hand? And the answer is no. So the mocking then in this letter is, how do you think you're one god is ever going to protect you when we have you surrounded. You have to get this visual. Assyria, coming down from the north, has progressively been beating up and tearing down every type of defense that, that Israel had in the north, and now has gone down to the south, and we see that the walls and everything that they have built up for defense, uh, the king of Assyria and his troops have, have destroyed everything. They have now come to a little area. Guess where they're at right here? Jerusalem. And they are surrounding Judah's capital now. They've already taken care of Samaria. So now they're down south, and they're surrounding them and saying, 
you better give up. Look what has happened to everybody that has been in our way. We have destroyed them. They cannot stand up. I was not personally in the military. I have talked to many that have been in the world wars, Korean, etc. And those who are, well, they really were in the war and were there on the front line, one thing you're going to remember is this. Most of them don't talk about it. Now, the guys that have been around it, they have all kinds of stories to tell you. But those who were in with the bloodshed and seeing the destruction, it is a horror story. These people have been seeing and knowing about others that they knew, the surrounding areas, the things that they've planted, the, the, the horror that has happened to them all around. I described some of how uh, Syria and, and the documentations of what they would do to the enemy. Not a pleasant sight. Folks, it's hard for us to understand people that are barbaric. They love torture. The Assyrians loved torturing the bad guy or their enemy. They would put hooks in them and hang them. They would rip the skin off of them and put them out in the sun. It went beyond just cutting their heads off. I mean, these people were so barbaric, they, took, they had pep rallies in what they were going to do to the people. And all of a sudden, God is viewing and watching this. And it is no, no surprise that Israel was allowed to be destroyed by these people. But now they're coming into the righteous. Now they're coming into the people that have been saying, God, we want to trust you. We want to do right what's in, in, in your sight. Now, not all the people, but in particular, the king. Folks, what you have to remember is we are looking at this man. He is one man. He is a man. Yes, he is anointed. He is a king, but he is still one. That what you'll learn in the scriptures is that God uses individuals for very powerful things for his cause. And even though this is just a man... God was able to use him powerfully. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into the 19th chapter, and we're going to see how this man took and began to pray. He took this very letter and had to lay it out before God. What a man of faith. What a man of trusting God. And now he's getting this letter. By the way, this which we have read is not all the story. And here he is, the man who was in command. And this letter is getting ready to come to him, and he has to make a choice. What are we going to do? The enemy is upon us. He has been winning. I have given him some money to try to say, listen, just leave us alone. And he laughed at that. And he begins to question and bring in doubt to the king, but also to the kingdom that he was involved with, Israel or Judah. Doubt about God. And that's, that's where we're at as Christians. This story is very powerful. And I could not wait to get to this today. 
in verse 28, we are going to see at the latter part that as uh, Rapshka begins to talk in the Jews' language so that all the Jews could hear that were present. It's interesting, this man, some have believed, could quite possibly have been a proselyte that once was able to speak the Hebrew language because he was there amongst them and then left and compromised and went to the Assyrians. Now he's the one that knows the language, bilingual at least, and is able to go to the leaders of Israel and say in their own language, here's the problem with you. And this is what you need to do. You, you, if you're trusting in Egypt to get you out, we'll, we'll kill you all. We'll destroy you. And then in a mocking way, now if you're telling me you're, you're trusting in the living God, huh, he's nothing. In the last part of verse 28, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Now what you've got to remember is the king of Assyria is talking about himself to them. <laughs> Are you seeing the arrogance, the pride? Oh, by the way, I'm the great king. That, that's like Carl saying, oh, by the way, I'm the greatest preacher in all of the United States of America. That, that's what it's like. This is the arrogance behind him, that I'm the greatest, and there's no king out there that could ever be compared to me. By the way, you'll remember that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And when confidence is there, just watch. Just watch what's going to happen. So sure enough, this arrogance and this pride, we have to ask the question, well, where does this come from? Where does pride and arrogance come from? You see, you'll learn in the Old Testament when God describes Satan that he is one that is lifted up with pride. Because he says, he says inside of his heart, I'm beautiful, I'm great, I'm going to be like the Most High God. All those descriptions that Satan has. And then what he tells us is that we, even as Christians, must be careful that we do not go into the same temptation and that we will become proud in our hearts. You say, what is, what is pride? Are we not allowed to have confidence at all? Are we not allowed to have a boldness? Yes. Those words, confidence and boldness, are much different than the biblical pride that we see here. A pride is a dependency on self that I can accomplish something. Christians say, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. See, my, my confidence is not in self. The confidence in, is in the power that comes as a result of trusting in Christ. By the way, we have an enemy that is filled with pride, and it is Satan. He believes he will win. If he didn't, why is he busy doing what he is doing? He does have a confidence. He does believe he can win. We have read the back of the book, though, and we know who does win. Well, then he begins to take uh, the reputation this letter from Hezekiah, to Hezekiah, he, ta he takes now the reputation of Hezekiah and throws it to those who are listening to this letter. He says, verse 30, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. Now, how can you make somebody trust in the Lord? Now, think about that. 
Wouldn't it be nice if we could make everybody trust in the Lord? Okay? Okay, I'm making you right now. You have to trust in the Lord. See, it doesn't work that way, does it? Now, you've got to remember, this is the ideas and the philosophies of the world talking to people to discourage them in trusting in the Lord. What he doesn't recognize is that it is not an individual's ability to make somebody else trust. It is that they, as an individual, have found out this is what God wants me to do. God wants you to trust in the Lord. Not in Hezekiah. Not in a man. Your trust is in God doing something miraculous. By the way, Baptists, the word miraculous is not a bad word. We're sometimes afraid of talking about God doing something supernatural in our lives or in the lives of others. If we didn't believe that God uh, could miraculously save somebody and change their life, why are we here? If we didn't believe that there is real miraculous heaven, that God is going to take you and I from here and put us in heaven someday, why are we here? That's like a really big miracle. But yet here we are gathering, believing in these great, powerful truths that God can do. And in particular, why do we as Christians pray for the miracle if we didn't believe God can do it? So we do pray. So sure enough, he says, don't listen to him. Because the reputation of Hezekiah up to this point, it was a good reputation that he's going to say to the people, listen, let's trust in God. Don't give up. You can almost sense that Hezekiah was the encourager. We can do all things through the Lord's strength. He is the self-sufficient one. Look at what he did for Moses. Look what he did in Abraham's life. Look what he has done in the past. Can't he do it again? And you can almost sense this word coming from the king was going to be powerful. So now the enemy begins to bring... Well, let's, let's show you an easy way to get through all this problem. I have you surrounded, and you're about to die. And you know what we've been doing to everybody else, and it's going to happen to you. You're going to be destroyed and tortured, and we're going to abuse your people. Now, let me show you how you can get away from all this problem. Why don't you come to me and make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then I'm going to give. He says, then you will eat every man of his own vine, etc. This is a a very interesting statement. The word making an agreement with me by a present is summarized with the words blessing. The word peace is behind it. And so it's a blessed peace. Blessed is happy, joyful. So this whole story can be that of tranquility and peace and blessings that are going to be coming your way, and all that you have to do is leave where you are at and come to me. And then I'm going to take you, and I'm going to put my arms around you, and I'm going to take you up to Nineveh. I'm going to take you to my capital, and I'm going to show you all the blessings of my land. 
Oh, it has all these wonderful things too. Just like you have down in Jerusalem. Oh, I got all that too. It's just perfect up here. You can have your own vines and you can have your own places to get your water and dip it out. Oh, it's so cool. It's so refreshing up in Assyria. It's just perfect if you just come on out. Isn't it sound really easy? Just, just make peace with me. Just come to me and I'll give it to you. In other words, make an agreement with me. You then will, of course, be leaving your God. You're going to be leaving your capital, and you're just going to follow me. Satan always has an easy way, seemingly, out of that which is hard. Another way of saying it is, you are able to purchase by giving to me you are able to purchase a blessing from me. You are able to purchase peace if you'd only come out to me. Does, does this start to ring a bell with you just a little bit? Does anybody remember Genesis in chapter 3? Do you remember how Satan just wants to throw doubt into the mind of Eve and then also, of course, trickling into Adam's life also. Now listen, I know what God said to you, but, you know, he doesn't want what's best for you. I got an easier way for you. Wouldn't you like to be as God's? I mean, why all these trees out there? You're not allowed to eat this one? Do you think maybe he's holding back something really, really good for you? How easy would it be? Just take it, eat it, and all of a sudden your eyes are opened up. You're going to have things that you could never imagine. She saw the food. It was good to eat. Pleasant to the eyes. This is the attraction. This is, by the way, a picture of the very anti-Christ. This is a picture of how Satan works, not only in Genesis 3, not only in the life of Christ in Matthew in chapter 4, but will also futuristically be doing the exact same thing during the very tribulation time period. There are some powerful prophetic things that are going on here. And we're going to see it again when we get into the 19th chapter. By the way, the enemy, he's, he's in a rut. He's stuck. You know what it is? He, 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 he gets into these areas of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is how he does things. And he's still doing it today. And he's going to do it in the future. And he's going to do it during the millennium too. When he's left out of prison, if you will. And this is the way Satan works. Satan is always after the remnant of Israel. Remember, the majority are done. They're destroyed. And they're just one little area, Jerusalem, that is being surrounded. Remember Revelation 20? How they surround the beloved city, Jerusalem, to destroy it? Gog and Magog? All this should be ringing a bell, folks. And so here again, Satan is being used. Am I hearing bells? <laughs> that wasn't the Trump, was it? <laughs> That's not mine, is it? Mine, I, was, I was preaching intensely, and, and uh, I had an alarm set on my, my phone, and I'm on my knees, and I'm in Gethsemane preaching away, and all of a sudden, ding, 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 ding. Uh, so trust me, if your phone goes off, it's happened to me too. It's okay. Welcome to the new age of church, eh? 
So sure enough, he is unwilling to go towards this agreement. Look, look with me something futuristic. Let, let me show you how this works together. Look at 1 Thessalonians with me. In our Sunday school class, we actually talked about some of this. So for some of them, it's a, a somewhat of a repeat. 1 Thessalonians in chapter number 5. Keep your finger or toe back there in 2 Kings. We'll be back there in a little bit. Now, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, it deals with the snatching away of the bride of Christ, the church. And then, in chapter 5, he begins to talk about in the last days. In the last days has to do with the future when God is going to be bringing judgment down and going to be, if you will, destroying the, the outside the world and is going to be then taking the remnant and he is going to be protecting them. That's all found in the Revelation in chapters 4 through 19. So, sure enough, this, the day of the Lord, as he describes in chapter 5, verse 2, is going to be coming at the last part as a thief in the night. Now, one of the key words in this chapter to help you to understand this and what it's talking about is the word they. Okay? The word they is one of the most important words to see. Because when we're talking about they, or the ones out there, them, we're not talking about us, the church. We're, you know why? Because we, the church, are already out of here. So praise God, we're snatched away, and we're already in heaven, okay? We're up there going through the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going through the marriage feast of the Lamb, but down here on this earth are the they. Now they, there will be a remnant of believers, absolutely, but we're dealing with they, the outside. So when, verse 3, for when they shall say, well, you, you ever heard, what are they? Who are they? Well, now you know who they are. They are outside the non-believers, and the proclamation is going to be peace and safety. Everything is just beautiful, tranquil, no war. Come on, let's get our arms together and just love humanity. Everything is just fine. When they are going to be crying out, Peace and safety. Now notice this. Then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child. Now notice. They shall not escape. You see, Satan is the one that is behind calling out peace and safety. The Antichrist in the future will be crying out peace and safety, and then that agreement in Daniel 9 that comes with Israel is going to be taking a huge turn, and those who have been around and under are going to find out quickly, now listen to me, as Satan embraces to give you peace and tranquility, he's got a knife or a dagger ready to hit you right in the ribs. He doesn't want to love you, he wants to destroy through deception. Do you really think that Sennacherib really wants to embrace Israel? Do you really think he wants to take them? Come on up to my house. Let's hang out up here. No, he wants to take them, scatter them, be over and destroy. Literally, genocide. He wants them wiped out. But listen, folks, the most powerful thing that you will see in the Scriptures in pertaining to Israel is that God always has a remnant 
He will always have a remnant. And God uses the remnant as a small group to confound the mighty and the powerful ones by His might because by His strength, He will save Israel. By His strength, He will have His remnant. And to this day, we see how everybody wants to surround and destroy them, and yet, sure enough, God preserves. And every nation that will agree with God's covenant with them will be blessed. And that's why we as a nation must be behind them. We must support them. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And it doesn't always happen right away. But as a thief in the night, the Lord will destroy them. Peace. I'll give you peace. Satan's lurement is the easy way. Quick, easy tranquility. Don't believe it. Look at, look at back in 2 Kings again, chapter 18, verse 32. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. There's a few things that the king of Assyria is promising. He's promising food. Secondly, he is promising land. By the way, if you want to uh, rouse the mind of a Jew, say the word land. Okay? Food, yeah, but oh, land? We get land in this? Uh-huh. And it's interesting how even Satan said to Jesus Christ, all of these kingdoms will I give you if you just fall down and worship me. Christ knew how Satan worked. Israel should not have been surprised. And neither should we, Christians. When we are lured in, with possessions and things. He goes on and talks about the land that has the bread and the vineyards and land of oil, olive, and of honey. But are you with me in the middle of verse 32? I want you to see what Sennacherib promises. That you may live and die not. Now isn't that interesting? And you would say, well, this is pretty easy to explain. He's saying, if you choose to follow me, and I will take you away to my land, I will give you food, and you're not going to die. You now will live, because you are complying to everything. You are presenting this ag agreement, this covenant with me. I will give you peace and tranquility. Everything that you need is going to be given to you. This seems like a great way out. It seems like a great promise. But doesn't that sound familiar to Genesis in chapter number 3? If you eat of this, you're not going to die. You're going to live. These parallels, folks, I hope you're seeing this. If you can't see the enemy, Satan, trying to take and destroy Israel or Judah, the last remnant, everybody else is done. This is all that's left you say, why would he want so much? Why would Satan be behind Sennacherib to destroy 
the remnant. Because this remnant is Judah. And through Judah comes a very special one whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he can destroy the people, the promise of God will then not be fulfilled. This is all how Satan is trying to destroy that which God is doing for our good. The quicker we can understand, Satan wants to destroy, God wants to give life. Satan wants to bring condemnation, death, hell. God wants to give life and heaven. He wants what's best for us. And right now, Satan is busy at work, yes, in the lives of the world, to try to blind them. But folks, he is as busy working with you and I, the remnant, in this world as true Christians. Because if he can attack and destroy us and bring confusion within the church, has he not won a huge battle? No, we know he loses at the end. But he really believes if he can destroy the church, then the message of the gospel will not go out and lives will die and be destroyed, even though he is promising them, I will give you peace, I will give you prosperity, I will give you life here on this earth, and you won't have to worry because you die, six foot, that's it, there ain't no more. What a great promise from Satan. But it's a lie. It's a lie. He doesn't want to give life. He's saying I'm going to give you life, but death comes. God knows the day you eat this, you're not going to die. He's got... He, he knows if you eat this, you're going to become as gods, just like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. you got to eat this. You don't know what you're missing. And that's the way Satan works. He always makes it look better out there than what we have with God. Let me ask you something as a Christian. What do you need that our God has not given? Name one thing. You know, I'm, I'm happy because I'm thinking of individuals right now that at one point were walking with the Lord, everything was going good, and all of a sudden, the cares of this world came into their minds, and all of a sudden, they started thinking about me, myself, and I. And it wasn't long Till they're trying to create these new careers, create this new this, create this new that, putting his family to the side, putting everything that was right, putting away the church, putting away everything, instead of going in a powerful direction for the Lord, now all of a sudden going towards divorce court and going towards misery. Because he believed the lie of the devil. And my heart breaks. Because you can see methodically through the years all of this coming in. Listen, the enemy makes it look really good. It's just like here, but it's not. Praise God that Hezekiah stood for the truth. It would not allow this to happen in his, in his reign anyways. And uh, he goes on, of course, this letter goes on in, in the last part of verse 32. Don't hearken or don't listen to Hezekiah. He's going to persuade you, and he's going to say, the Lord will deliver us. That isn't going to happen. There's no way God is ever going to be able to have this happen. By the way, this is called blasphemy. Okay? 
blasphemy. When the world says God cannot, and they begin to use God's name and tear him down in what he is doing, that's called blasphemy or speaking against i got to save time. Revelation 13, 6, you will see that the Antichrist speaks great swelling words about himself, begins to blaspheme the name of God, his holy city, and his people. And he will rip every word he possibly can to tear the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ down. And sure enough, that is the blasphemy that he will do. Then he goes on, the king of Assyria, and describes there is no way any god out there is able to protect because I have gone through many nations, many people, and I have destroyed them, and their gods didn't save them. How in the world do you think that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem, the last part of verse 35, out of my hand? I am this powerful that even God himself cannot stop me. Ring a bell, huh? Sure enough, this questioning of God's power is the conclusion of this letter. The last, the most important thing that he could say to the, to the Judah, Judean people is this. The Lord can't deliver you. He can't save you. I am surrounding you. Give up. Give in. Come to me. Give me this peace offering and I will give you everything that you want. And the wisdom of Hezekiah preceded this letter. He knew. You know what he said? Nothing. You see, he had to say something. has to have a, a response to this. He, he's got to look and say, no. Well, let me think about it. I'll pray about it. That's what Baptists usually say. I'll pray about it. No. There was not even an answer given. Look at it, verse 36. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. The wisdom of Hezekiah. It just keeps building, doesn't it? This, this man is a man to follow. And he said nothing. Look at a couple of Proverbs with me. Look at Proverbs 16. 32. Proverbs 16, 32. Says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. What I'm trying to teach you is this. Instead of being out of control, enraged, angry, saying things that he was going to regret, the spirit that God had inside of him was in absolute control of what he was doing and even what he was saying or not saying. Folks, there are times that we are going to be attacked by the enemy. The way you know if you're walking with God or not is whether you're going to re react in the spirit or you're going to react in the flesh. And when we are led by the Spirit of God, there is a control of how we react in adverse situations. The easy thing to do is to lash out in anger. The easy thing to do is to scream and to holler. That's the easy way. That's as easy as it gets. 
Oh, you're saying that to me? Let me tell you something then. God's not in that. Matter of fact, look at another chapter in the book of Proverbs in chapter 26. Two verses, verses 4 and 5. So now we have this principle of Hezekiah having control. He has those who are with him in control that God says is stronger than a city. If a guy can control this inside. And now he says, 26 verse 4, Remember how he didn't say a word? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Now let me teach you something. There's a time to talk, and there's a time not to talk. And when you find that balance, you let me know. Because there's a lot of times I really want to speak my peace and let people know, and God says there's a time not to talk. Let me say this to you. If you are, you know, on a rampage and you're telling some mature Christian about all these things and, you know, you're talking about this person and ripping them down and all these things are going on and all of a sudden you look at that mature Christian and you look at the eyes and they just stare at you and say nothing, you know you've been had. What he just showed you is that you're a fool. Not even worth answering. Because if I do answer, I'm going to be doing the exact same that you're, thing that you're doing. And I'm not going to put the gloves on. You want to put the gloves on, and you want to fight, and you want to do all these things, uh, I'm not going to put the gloves on. There's a time not to answer. There's people right now I would love, love to get in their face. I would love to say some things. But I'm telling you right now, me being quiet is speaking louder than talking because the person is acting as a fool they are shooting their mouth and condemning themselves with their own tongue and I'd love to say something but I don't have to I don't want to get into that battle Christians there's times for you to just be quiet there's times at work the fools talk and there's a time you just look with no reaction they'll get it and yet, did you ever notice the next verse? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Answer, in other words, according to wisdom, to silence his arrogance. Because he thinks he's the smartest thing. He thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. There's nothing like me. I'm the greatest. Listen to the wisdom of, that I have. And then if you say nothing, they're going to say, see, you're speechless. You can't say anything to my wisdom, can you? So God says, no, there's time that you have to answer a fool according to his stupidity, foolishness, arrogance, so that you, by the choice, wise words that most times are very limited, Pierce the very heart of not only him, but those who he is around. And he then becomes silenced. There was a guy um, who was 
in the church years ago here. He was over about where Gortney's are at. And um, it was an evening service. And uh, people were starting to come in, you know. The service hadn't started. I'm just walking through. And uh, real loud and boldly, uh, he says so everybody could hear him, Boy, do I disagree with your message this morning. You know what you said? <laughs> I'm like, no. What did I say? <laughs> I only preached for 45 minutes. Who knows what I said, you know? <laughs> and he goes, well, you said this, 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 and this. And I said, really? I said, I think you need to get the tape. I said, I think what you need to do is actually listen to the CD. It's actually recorded, and you will actually find that I said just the opposite of what you are accusing me for. And I walked away. That's all I could do. And by the way, uh, he didn't have a whole lot of respect for people that knew him because of the arrogance, the pride, always downing people. He wanted to be the man. Everybody was watching the diatrophies, if you know what I mean. And, uh, yeah, I had another guy, First Church. It's amazing how these guys do it in front of everybody else. So I'm preaching First John chapter 1, verses 8 and following. And in the midst of that, the heart of the message was, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the end of the message, I'm there, and it was a little country church, and we'd be out in this, the steps. You know, it was, it was really pretty, you know, these steps going down. And there was an old millstone at the bottom uh, at the landing. You know, matter of fact, Bill and Fran, you were over there at Mount Pleasant, just a pretty church. And I was out there greeting everybody and smiling, you know. And, and sure enough, he comes up, and Steve's the guy's name. He come up, I highly disagree with your message. And I'm thinking, how can you disagree with 1 John 1, 9? <laughs> I mean, it's about as pretty as, you know, it's kind of like right there. And, he, and, I, and I said about as loud as him, good. Because I want everybody to know, I'm not backing down to this guy. And I needed to answer them. And I said, I will talk to you this afternoon. Because I disagree that you disagree. It's right there. I'm not going to apologize for the word. I'm not going to back down on what I see the scriptures clearly teaches me. And so sure enough, they... You know, marched out of the church and he took his family with him and so forth and tried to try to build his own church. And what he found out is it's harder to build a church than it is to tear one down. It's really easy to rip things down. But you try to build the saints up, try to see people saved and all this, it's it's not as easy as it looks. Easiest thing to do is criticize. There's a time to answer a fool. And there's other times that I will stare and just look. And before long, they'll start talking to themselves in a circle. And before long, they'll undo everything that they just said because what they knew was wrong. Control the spirit, folks. Control the tongue. <laughs> I had a person talk to my wife not long ago. And they said, oh, we don't know what to do. This person we're around, all they do is rip everybody else down. Talk about this person. Talk about this person. Talk about this person. What am I to do? You know the best thing sometimes to do? Nothing. And you'll see, you're not digging what I'm saying, are you? Like, nope, because you're wrong. There's a controlled spirit. And all of a sudden, the conviction comes into the heart. Can you imagine these men, when they're done with this furious, accusative, blasphemous letter saying there's no way God can deliver you and they just stare looking in their eyes 
didn't need to say a word because you know what they were telling them? We stand with our God. That's exactly what the message was. Next week, what we're going to learn is Hezekiah's reaction to the letter. We're going to learn about how is it that he trusted in God. What, what recipe is in there for you and I? We're going to see in his life. And it begins with humility. It begins with prayer. And it, it comes to a place where you say, God, I can't. That's trusting in God. The enemy is real. And he hasn't stopped. He is still at work. And what we've got to do is have enough wisdom to know how to react. We've got to not listen to the enemy. We must listen to the truth, which is God's word. And not allow Satan to take us from that which we know is sure and steadfast. The land that he has told us to anchor into and not to be moved. And if we do that, we will stand. And that's when God can step in and to prove himself faithful, but not until we stand. We must stand fast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then we know, we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. I pray you will bless. Thank you for men of God like this great king that we can read and learn from. Help us, Lord. Help us to see the truth. Bless your word. And Lord, if there are any here this day that do not know Christ is their personal Savior, that Lord, today will be the day that you will draw them to yourself. May their faith in you begin. I pray for us as Christians, we know about the enemy. Sometimes, Lord, we're not watching. Help us, Lord, to be aware of his devices. In Jesus' name, amen.